Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We've been talking a fair bit about the price of electricity. Because it is climbing dramatically. And it's climbing dramatically in the province of Ontario, but it's climbing dramatically elsewhere as well. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg telling us on this program after the COP21 conference in Paris that in the UK particularly it's a huge issue with the elderly poor riding buses all day in the wintertime to try to stay warm. Thousands of British seniors, and you can check the, uh, the website yourself, I read a number of them on air not so long ago, uh, British seniors dying in the thousands of cold home-related illnesses. So what's happening in the province of Ontario? Between 2004 and 2014, in the two largest cities of the province, Ottawa and Toronto, electricity prices up 80%. Why is this going on? And how much trouble is the province in? Why is rural Ontario particularly considered to be in a crisis situation as far as electricity prices are concerned? We talked to the owner of Donnell Supermarket in Echo Bay, north of Sault Ste. Marie, last weekend. It was a 5,000-square-foot full-service grocery store, which at the moment has been reduced to essentially a corner store because the hydro bill went from 2000 a month, you heard the owner tell us, from 2000 a month to 6000 a month, and they just can't afford it. Even though they brought all the refrigeration and all their electrical supplies up to the best and highest and most energy-conserving standards, they still could not afford to pay the bills which were escalating dramatically. What's going on, and what are the answers? Patrick Brown is the Progressive Conservative Party leader in the province of Ontario. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Brown, thank you very much for taking the time. Would you define the problem and tell us why we're in it? Well, first of all, great to be on your show, and this is the biggest issue I'm hearing around Ontario. Uh, So there's a uh, a few reasons we're in this problem. One, since 2009, we've given away $6 billion in surplus electricity. You know, you, you just spent some time talking about the U.S. election. And, you know, in the U.S., the theme is, for Donald Trump, make America great. And I've been saying at Queen's Park, it's not Donald Trump trying to make, make America great. It's Kathleen Wynne. She's giving free electricity to Michigan, to New York, to Pennsylvania. We've signed 20-year agreements for electricity we do not need. And, and and the government, as much as they've canceled someone's in, into the distant future, an LRP, too, they're still signing new agreements, and we don't need it. So that's a big thing that needs to be addressed, uh, this, this surplus. Um, the second thing we have to you know, wrap our heads around is this fire sale of Hydro One, where we're going to lose complete control over future rate increases. Uh, and the way Hydro One's being run, you know, Wynn gave the new CEO a $4 million paycheck when the CEO of Hydro-Quebec is 400000 which for me is symbolic of how they're running the organization, you know, continues to be 
um, a real concern for Ontario. Well, you talk about uh, giving away power and making deals that we don't need to make, and that's what uh, the Premier did with the province of Quebec. What was it, a billion dollars of power we bought from them? Is that, was that the number? So you know, if she had done that seven years ago... But, but that's what happened just recently, yeah. right, in the yeah, last couple of weeks? Recently, we have a giant surplus, and she yeah. agreed to buy more. So, you know, I think you could have got affordable, cheap power from Quebec, and she should have done that seven years ago instead of going out there uh, and signing all these 20-year agreements for renewable power that we don't need. And frankly, um, even if we don't need it, we still have to pay for it. When I spoke with Ross McKittrick, the economics professor from the University of Guelph, who's written a lot of articles in the National and Financial Post on the issue of hydropower and the cost of same in the province of Ontario, when I spoke with him actually last weekend, uh, he pointed out that Ontarians who try to conserve power, or in fact do, Mr. Brown, conserve power, and then demand drops in hydro rates, they're not going to see that because the rates are going to climb nevertheless. And yeah. exporting power often ends up with Ontario exporting surplus power at a loss. Yeah, so we've created a situation that even when we conserve, we're going to pay more. Under the government's five-year plan, they say that rates, and this is under their own rosy projections, that we're going to see rates go up 42%. You're going to continue to see rates go up every month. And, and the government tries to confuse everyone. They announced they're going to do a PST rebate. You know what they quietly did at the same time? They got rid of the clean energy benefit. So they replaced a 10% rebate with an 8% rebate. So it is going to get uglier. There's more seniors who are going to be living in energy poverty, more families that can't make ends meet, more businesses that are going to have to close their doors because of energy, because the big issues on the fire sale and the surplus, Kathleen Wynne is not willing to address. And, and people say to me around the province, in what world would Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty have signed these contracts? Knowing that we have to give it away to Michigan, knowing we have to give it away to Pennsylvania, how could they possibly have signed these contracts? And you know what I think is the most shocking thing of all, and might, and, and might explain this, is those 30 companies who we overpaid by $9.2 billion, according to the Auditor General on Renewable Energy, those 30 companies gave $1.3 million to the Ontario Liberal Party. So I need to ask you this question, and that's a very good point to be remembered. Put that, uh, put that in the column to be remembered come election time. If a constituent came to your office and asked you for help as a member of the provincial legislature in lowering his or her hydro bill, what would you be able to assure that person you would do personally to help in that regard? Is there anything that you can do? Unfortunately, right now, you know, the, we, we, we could point them to the, to the low-income um, hydro uh, help that the government set up, but even that program, they wasted the money on $12 million in consultants. They're spending as much money in consultants as they're, as they're spending on hydro relief for low-income families. And so I'll point them to whatever problems, whatever programs there are provincially, but, you know, to be honest with Ontarians, we're in a mess right now on hydro, uh, and, and until the government's willing to acknowledge the structural mistakes that we're taking and, and take a new course, it's going to continue to get worse. Do I hear you saying that if you're elected premier in the next election, that there's really nothing you can do to alter course for the province and for the ratepayer? No, absolutely not. There, there's two big things we can do. One, um, we can stop signing the the any new contracts. We can look at areas where we might be able to get out of some existing surplus uh, electricity generation. And, and that's the first thing. The second thing is, is we could 
we could stop the fire sale of, of Hydro One. And, and I'd actually go further, uh, actually, not just two points, a third point, I would give, you know, local planning power back to municipalities because in some cases these these wind turbines are going in areas where the municipality is completely against it and, and we're trampling on local democracy. I'll give you an example. In my backyard in Collingwood, the government's trying to put a 500-foot wind turbine next to an, an airport. And the airport saying it's not safe, the municipality saying that it's not safe, and the government continues to try to push foolish ideas like this for electricity we don't need. And so I think if you fix those three things, you stop signing these contracts, you, you stop the fire sale of Hydro One, and you restore municipal planning rights, um, I do think that the, you know, we, 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 we can set a much more responsible path for Ontario where we can have competitive energy prices. All right, so if you and I have a conversation, day one, it's Premier Brown. Okay, you yep. and I have a conversation. Well, the first thing we talk about is electricity and electricity rates. And you say to me what you just said to me now. I'm going to say to you, what can you do to roll back what the problem is now? I understand what you said about the three things that need to be done, and I understand they're all positive. But is there anything you can do to roll back the problem, or are we contractually obliged for the next 20 years to just eat it? Well, I, I'm not convinced that we just have to uh, eat it, as, to, to, to your, use your words. You know, through an FOI, and the government doesn't share any copies of their contracts. They're very secret about, about these 20-year agreements. But on the Samsung deal, we were able to, through an FOI, find out that the, there was actually an exit clause for, for, for some of the surplus electricity. And the government could have got out of billions of dollars in surplus, but they, but they executed it instead. What I want to know from all the existing contracts is where are there opportunities for for exit that won't that won't lead to significant taxpayer exposure. I want to know um, what we can do to to deal with the surplus because I can't allow Ontario to continue to go down the path where we're subsidizing our competitors in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and New York. We have to find a way to deal with the surplus um, because we can't continue to put it on everyone's global adjustment. I know you can't stay very much longer. I'll just take another minute here. Uh, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, who's going to be on this program tomorrow, by the way, he said after the COP21 conference on this show that green policies are driving up the cost of electricity and mostly hurt the poor. In the UK now, environmentalists are proud to declare that electricity consumption dropped by almost 10% since 2005. What they don't say, Mr. Brown, that this is assisted by a 50% increase in electricity prices. And as we know in Ontario... I mentioned this at the beginning, the two largest cities in the province, Ottawa, Toronto, 80% increase in the price of electricity between 2004 and 2014. There's a huge issue. In rural Ontario, it's a crisis, and it's catching up in urban Ontario. It's a crisis, and, 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 and some of the decrease in consumption is because of job losses. You know, we, we shouldn't exactly. celebrate losing 350,000 manufacturing jobs as a green initiative. Um, and frankly... I get so frustrated when the government tries to say this is about green energy. It isn't. Because of these excess contracts, we have hydroelectric projects in Ontario that we're mothballing. We have Niagara Falls that isn't running at full capacity. Water power is green. These are bad contracts signed over 20 years, um, and I want Kathleen Wynne to explain. I want Dalton McGinty to explain why they accepted $1.3 million in donations from 30 companies for surplus electricity. There's no reasonable, legitimate ex- explanation. You sound pretty emotional about this. Well, I go around... No, it's good. I, no, no, no. Listen, it's good. Good for you. We need to be. 
we need to not only do we need to be clear thinking, but we need to be passionate about this because it's it's hurting the people who can afford it the least. There's one woman who's on social assistance who got a twenty thousand dollar bill from Hydro One. Twenty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand bucks, one person. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. You know when we talk about electricity prices, it's more than just an, an economic issue. It is, as Francesca Dobbin told me the other day when I was speaking with her, uh, it is a human rights issue. It is a human rights issue. And that's something to really think about. Francesca Dobbin is the executive director of the United Way of Bruce Gray County in Ontario. And uh, she told me electricity pricing is a crisis, particularly in rural Ontario. Will it cost lives? Well, it appears it may already have done that. I first, Francesca, thank you very much for coming on the program. I first read about you two years ago, where you where you were quoted in a news story, having tremendous concern about people who were economically in great difficulty, not being able to meet their 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 electricity bills or their fuel bills, and you said you were, you were afraid somebody was going to die or you're going to lose somebody. I think was was the quote, and uh, and, and that to me just that that just ran up. So many red flags and so many warnings. That was two years ago. We're there now. We are there now. How bad is it? And thank you um, for taking the time. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, we have lost someone in, in the province that, um, as a, a direct result of being disconnected from their power. Um, you know, it's really hard to draw that straight line of, of cause and effect sometimes. Um, but a Curve Nations, First Nations man, um, died when his generator exploded. And the reason he was using a generator is because he'd been disconnected from his hydro. Somebody. And that's the level of desperation um, that people are going through in our rural communities where they're using generators because they can maybe manage the 2 or 3 $5, $10 of gas a day, but they can't pay the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars that their hydro bill is. There is one one person at least, one woman, who had a $20,000 bill from Hydro One, and you were working on negotiating some kind of manageable payment for her, I believe. We're, we're trying to do a couple things uh, with that, that particular file. One, we're, we're trying to negotiate the outstanding $22,000 now um, that is owed, because, of course, they're charging $300 worth of interest every month. And we're also then trying to understand how a single individual living in a bungalow has an equal billing estimate of $491 a month. How does that happen? I don't know. That's the question. And how does that happen? Um, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Because right, I mean, that's, that's, the... that's just my building here. Uh, the United Way has a building in downtown Owen Sound, so we're high-density urban in terms of costs for delivery. 5,000 square feet, eight computers on during the day because we have tenants and, you know, air conditioning, and ours is just over $500 a month. That has to be just terrifying for this this woman. Her name is Nicola Hart. Uh, $20,000, now you say $22,000, hydro, uh, hydro one bill. And she's, she has to pay this or they're going to turn everything off. Unless you can negotiate something for her. Well, we're in negotiation, so I'll just connection proceed. So what is that? What is the, I mean, what do they say? How, how, do they, how do they justify this? They say she's used it, so she needs to pay it. That's, that's what they say about everything. She's not Al Gore with a mansion in Tennessee with 
you know, the, the, you remember the story that uh, Mr. Gore was using 20 times the average monthly amount of electricity for the, for the, for the average American family. This is one person. Well, this is it. And in the last five years, you know, the children have grown up. And so all those uh, toys and TVs and all that stuff's all gone. She's also accessed all the insulation programs, traded out all the appliances for all the energy efficiency thing. So the consumption's been going down. That's obvious. So give us a sense then. I mean, we're talking about one person here, but the, the picture is much more broad. And, and uh, you said that rurally in Ontario, it, it is a crisis situation. And developing into a crisis situation in, uh, in urban areas, according to Mr. Patrick Brown, who's just on the air with us. So paint the picture for us. How, how desperate is the situation getting in a province where the government has said, no wood burning, no oil, no more gas, after they spent billions promoting natural gas? I, I don't believe for a second that they're going to get rid of natural gas. I just, we have areas without natural gas and they're planning expansion. So, um, I, you know, I don't know whose politics is doing what, but I just, I'm ignoring that because I just, okay. there's just no way they can get rid of gas when we're doing expansion. That makes no sense to me. Um, I think what the concern is, and it's a, you know, 30 years down the road, when we run out of natural gas, we need to make sure we have alternative fuels and maybe we go to electricity because, Hydro is always going to be there, uh, like uh, hydroelectric, I should say, um, is always going to be able to generate power. The nuclear fleet will still be here, whatever renewables are, are going to be there. So we will always have electricity, whereas fossil fuels and natural gas, the planet's only so big. And, you know, fracking is just so not a good idea. So we will run out. And I think that's what they're looking is at, that massive projection of, okay, when we run out, we've got to make sure that everybody can run on electricity. And that, and that was all the science fiction of the 70s. You'll have, to, you'll have to excuse me if I'm somewhat cynical when it comes to <laughs> politicians making any kind of pronouncement. Oh, yeah. But, but here we are. We're looking at uh, electricity prices uh, that are being charged to the, to the consumer and to the business community in the province of Ontario. And it's becoming unmanageable. We had Danelle Supermarket. We had the owner from uh, Echo Bay on last weekend. They've reduced their square footage from 5,000 square feet, at least of operation, operating space, to what is essentially now just a corner store uh, because their bill went from 2,000 a month to 6,000 a month, he told us. The situation is just spiraling out of control at a time when Professor Ross McKittrick, the, McKittrick rather, the economics prof from the University of Guelph, told us that never has it been l- cheaper to produce electricity, and yet never has it been more expensive to use it. It's, it's madness. And as you pointed out to me in our conversation, heat in a country like Canada is a human right. Oh, it's a human right. Um, in rural Ontario, where you have well pumps that rely on electricity, you cut somebody off, you reduce, they don't have water. Do we want to go back to where women are walking for three hours a day, four hours a day, carrying water in rural Ontario? And, and you know, are we melting snow to flush a toilet? And that's what people are being reduced to. You know, they, people make that decision, heat or eat. And, you know, once we get people past that December 1st, if they're Hydro One customers, yeah, Hydro One, Unigas don't disconnect over the winter, but all the other small ones do. Um, you know, that's part of some of our political push is to get that change at the OEB, and, and we're working towards that and nagging everybody around those issues. But it's, it's totally, this is not a luxury item. This is not 
making sure, well, you know, you get brand name craft dinner at the food bank instead of no name craft dinner. This is not a luxury item. This is a basic necessity. You're telling us that based on your experience as the executive director of the United Way at uh, Gray Bruce County, that, or Bruce Gray County, that, uh, that people are making the active choice, will be this winter, of heat or eat. They're making heat or eat discussions. Um, they have people who feel that this is a failing on their part. So they come in and, oh, I'm doing my best to cut back, and I cut my diabetic medication in half. So I cut all my pills in half because I can't afford my pills, so I'm stretching them. And therefore, I'm a good person because I'm making smart budgeting choices in order to afford my electricity. We've changed some of our messaging that the number one thing you should spend your money on is food and medication. When you speak with the provincial energy minister, and and you have, when you raise these issues, is the minister surprised, because he shouldn't be, but but what's the reaction from from the provincial government representative on this file? Um, We've had really positive response. Um, We have brought forward issues that no one has ever thought about before in a way where we, you know, this is the issue, this is the impact of the issue, and here's the solve, and it won't cost you any money. And there's this, oh, and that's part of our challenge is no one's talking to us on the ground. You know, everybody's talking, the corporate VPs of, of all these companies that run these green energy programs, you know, they're talking to the government and decisions are made, and then the on-the-ground decisions, and we're sitting here going, are, are you kidding me? You know, do you have any idea how this operates on the ground? You know, why are you not talking to us? Especially in rural Ontario, they make the assumption, oh, you're from rural, you've got to come so far away, we're not going to bug you to come. You know, they're doing the consultation around the long-term energy strategy for Ontario. The closest meeting to me is two hours away. Why are they not speaking with you? Oh, they're speaking with me now, but, <laughs> you know, they're not. But that's because you're who you are. Is, yeah, part of it is I'm a loudmouth. But the other part is they don't know how to solve. And it's really easy. And we see the lack of attention to rural on a lot of levels. So when they come out with poverty reduction strategies, they're all built to an urban model. Oh, we're going to run this after-school program. The kids will go home on the transit system. And I'm sitting here going, what transit system? I don't have a transit system. You know, and I can take your $10,000 of investment and I can impact really positively and make a massive difference for 100 people. In the city, they could possibly do 1,000 people. Well, where are you going to put the money where the biggest bang is? Let's affect 1,000 people. And we're sitting here going, but, 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 but we matter too. And that's the challenge is, you know, sorry about it, Toronto, but everybody thinks that it's Toronto. And when they get north of the 407, they just kind of go, oh, this is hard. And they turn around and they go back down into the city where it's nice and comfortable and, and we can manage and we can run programs because urban's easy. You said to me, you said to my listeners, that one person has already died. Not a straight line necessarily, but it's the straightest line we've it's had. It's the straightest line we've you've had, got. Okay. We've had people with stress. We've had people admitted to um, hospital, um, both you know, medical and, and emotional, mental health issues. Uh, I've had a, a, one of my staff spoke to a man who had had a heart attack and survived. And this is because and, of the hydro bill? 
Well, the, the hydrobill didn't cause a heart attack, but he was upset that he lived because had he died, the life insurance would have enabled him to, uh, his family, to pay all their bills, oh, whereas the fact Lord. that he was alive, he was no longer working, and they had to plug all these medical devices into the wall, oh, and my. so their hydrobill was climbing. Oh, my And goodness. so it, it would have been better had he died. Oh, my God. And he was in the psychiatric ward um, because he was suicidal, because he survived. What can people do to help? Because you have a, I, I want to get this in, and, and uh, I want to make sure that I don't, don't forget that I that I make sure that I get it on. You have a, a way for people to help out, right? You've got a you've got this wonderful name for a, for a site. So we have donatetoday.ca as our donation portal. That uh, people who want to support our utility assistance, they can they can support people in our community um, because there's no funding for oil, wood, or propane, the furnace oil. That no one's obligated to give us any funding for that. Uh, through any regulations with the government. Uh, so we're always helping rural folks with those costs. And then, um, you know, sometimes we need to access those funds on top of the uh, LEAP program, which is the natural gas and electricity program that's mandated under the Ontario Energy Board to help people. So, um, yeah, it's that. That's our place. If you want to go and, and make a donation and help us out with this, um, you know, it costs a lot of money for us to do this kind of advocacy um, as an organization. At the same time, you know, we see it as the end game. If we can reduce people's bills, they stop coming to us because they've got a handle on their electricity. Um, and, and this is where it frustrates me when they don't engage with us. When they came out with the home insulation programs under natural gas, you know, and we've all heard about the $11 million over the OESP, we had 110 applicants because I sat down with our local media and said, hey, we've got this program, and you can call 211 and find out about free insulation if you're on natural gas. And the local media went, hey, that's cool. And then they told their friends through the local media, and boom, we had 110 applicants in 10 days. And Union Gas picked up the phone and said, how did you do that? And I'm like, we talked to our community. That's what a novel concept. What a no- Let us do this. These are our people. Tell me we- this, Francesca, in the minute we have left. If we were to look at the people who are in your greater area, the, the, the catchment area that you take care of, the United Way, what percentage of people who are in economic distress um, are, are facing economic particular distress with their, with their heating bills? Is it 100%? Um, I would suggest it is 100%. Um, everybody's stressed. I have friends who've lost businesses this summer um, because of the extreme heat and therefore the extreme air conditioning that was required, and they lost their business over it. Uh, two months of $2,600 bills from Hydro One just was a nail in the coffin for these businesses. Um, you know, and that's that's part of the challenge. Every you know, if I go out for coffee and somebody's got a hydro bill in their purse, they'll bring it to me and show me what they're struggling with. Uh, you know. Donations are down, which is why it's nice to appeal across Canada through your show, and I appreciate that opportunity. But the top of the top ten jobs created in our region, seven are precarious retail jobs and minimum wage. So we're getting it on the revenue side as well as the consumption side. And you know, anybody who comes along and says, "Oh, reduce your consumption," you know, people have gotten these wonderful letters from Hydro One that allow you to compare yourself to your neighbors. Yeah. And they're coming from the IESO. They're not coming from that utility company. They're being told by the IESO to, to develop Francesca, we will, we will talk again. Okay. We will talk again for sure. God bless you for what you do. You're, you're, an you. amazing, you're an amazing woman. You do a tremendous amount of good. United Way always does a tremendous amount of good. But in Bruce Gray, uh, just absolutely fantastic. Donatetoday.ca is uh, where you can go to help out. And we'll talk again. Thank you, Francesca, for your time and for Thank what you, you do.
Uh, DonateToday.ca. Check it out. 100% of people who are in economic distress, heating their homes is part of their distress. And you heard one man said, I wish I was dead, then it wouldn't be uh, such a pain for my family. Please. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is just such a mess. And I don't want to be the one to tell you I told you so. But I think I might have said a few weeks ago on the show, if I didn't, I intended to cover my bases, baseball reference. Uh, I'm not surprised. I am not. Frankly, nothing surprises me as far as this election is concerned. So now we have the FBI director, James Comey, reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server, advising Congress by letter yesterday of his intent. And Clinton's executive assistant, Huma Abedin, had an account on the secret server and her estranged husband, Anthony Weiner's laptop, on which he was sexting with a 15-year-old, contains material the FBI is also interested in. I saw something earlier today. 10,000 emails? Huma Abedin on that server, 10,000? Ron Miller is uh, Associate Dean at the Helms School of Government at Liberty University. He's the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch, a U.S. Air Force veteran who contributes to this program on a fairly regular basis, and we're always fortunate when he does. Ron, good to talk to you again. It's been a, well, it's been a little while. It has been a little while. Good to be here. And Toby Condliffe. Toby is, well, he's American. He lives in Canada, superdelegate to the 2008 Democratic Party Convention, and he heads Democrats abroad in, uh, in Canada. You're the boss, aren't you, Toby? Uh, hardly the boss, but I'm a member. It's good to talk to you, Toby, on a regular basis. We talk about this election. Were you surprised at what happened yesterday, Toby, in your heart of hearts? Were you surprised at what took place? Absolutely. I think we were all surprised, Republicans and Democrats. See, we've we've had so many twists and turns in this campaign that I'm no longer surprised at anything, and I'm not surprised at anything that has to do with this particular server. What is it and the issue of the server? What is it that troubles you most as a Democrat? Well, I think what surprises me is that uh, uh, James Comey, the head of the FBI, issued his letter contrary to uh, guidelines issued by the Department of Justice which is that you should not comment on an election, on, on the ongoing cases uh, close to an election. He chose to ignore the Department of Justice guidelines and issue this letter. It's also surprising because he's a uh, registered Republican who served in the administration of President George Bush. Uh, and uh it should have been doubly incumbent on him to be scrupulous about his independence. Well, that didn't seem to bother anybody on the Democratic side of the equation in July when he said there'd be no indictment of the secretary. Well, it certainly didn't bother anybody because uh, his bias would normally take him the other way. So it gave actually additional credibility to his inclusion. Toby, do you think do you think it's a do you think it's a bias issue that he's actually trying to help the Trump campaign, or is he doing his job as the director of the FBI, who is not mandated to do what what the Department of Justice um, guideline suggests that he do? It it's a bipartisan guideline to not make any comments 
prior to an election in a way that might influence the election. But if it's if it's if it's critical, if it were reversed, if it's if it's a critical situation, potentially, uh, and a national security issue that involves somebody who could be the president of the United States, or might have, um, you know, we're taking this to to its, I don't, you will say illogic conclusion, but uh, if. If it's somebody who would have compromised the security of the United States and become president, isn't that something that people should know about, even if it's just 10 days before the vote? Well, it it doesn't matter at which point they should know about it. There should not be announcements that would affect the election. In any case, let's be let's talk about what what is potentially there. He has already found that there were inappropriate emails potentially with classified material in Hillary's on Hillary's server mm-hmm. what they've now found is another location where some of her emails appear even if those emails on Uma Abedin's husband's uh, laptop contain some classified material it's just more of what they've already found it, it doesn't change the conclusion that there was no uh, there was not sufficient evidence to indict her. Well, we don't know what has been found or hasn't been found or will be found. And I can appreciate yeah. what you're saying from the perspective as a, as, a, as a member of the Democratic Party and a supporter of, of Hillary Clinton, that you find it objectionable that he would make an announcement of an investigation without... I don't know if this is the right way to say it, without being being specific. Ron, what about how do you perceive this? You're an independent conservative. Um, how do you see what uh, the FBI director decided to do yesterday? Well, I'm a, <coughs> excuse me. I'm also a um, an observer, dispassionate observer, because obviously, in my role as a professor at Liberty University, we are nonpartisan, as in 501c3. And my perspective on it is that I wouldn't want to be Director Comey because he's been on the, uh, the list of both parties in this whole process. I can't imagine what it would be like to try and do your job as the nation's top uh, investigative officer in this kind of a politically charged environment. Mm-hmm. There was, there's been some talk that, <laughs> that members of the FBI, FBI agents, senior agents, past and present, have been pressuring the uh, the director to take another hard look at the server. Have you heard that uh, as well, Ron? And 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 how how should a director respond to pressure from or strong advice from within? Well, I've heard it. It's a rumor. I don't know if there's any truth to it. But what I would suggest is that uh, obviously he's trying to maintain the integrity and credibility of his investigative team, um, I don't believe that he's entirely independent in trying to make this kind of a decision. So I'm assuming that he's getting advice from his attorneys on how to proceed. Again, I think he's in a very difficult position, um, as you indicated, um, when he made the decision not to pursue any kind of charges. He was pilloried by one side, and now he's being pilloried by the other. And I understand that. That's politics. It's how, how it's supposed to work. And it is unique that something like this would happen uh, so close to the election. But as some people have pointed out, had he waited 
until after the election to make any kind of indication as to what he was going to do. I'm sure that would have brought down even more uh, political uh, accusations on his head. Again, I think he's in a very difficult position, and I don't know uh, what I would do in a similar situation. Um, my perception is he's trying to do the best job he can. Um, from looking at the decision he made, he seemed quite adamant in July that uh, and with everything that they investigated, they didn't believe that they could move forward with a prosecution. And as any prosecutor at any level of government will tell you, they want to take on cases that they believe they have a reasonable chance of gaining uh, conviction. And they didn't believe that it was there at the time. Um, this one's also complicated by the fact that you've got another case that's tied to it, that being the case against uh, former Representative Weiner. And I'm sure that one of the complications in trying to provide full transparency into what they're doing right now is that they've got that other case tied in, and they may not want to reveal things that are going to compromise that case. Yeah. Uh, Toby, what about, uh, what about that? And do you have concerns, Toby, that what the directors decided to do may have a significant impact on November the 8th? Well, first of all, let me say I, I totally agree with Ron uh, that uh, Director Comey is in a very difficult position and could be criticized by either side no matter what he did. Um, yes, I definitely think uh, what he's done by issuing the statement has poured gasoline on the smoldering embers of this fire about her server, uh, but and it will have an impact. Uh, but it will only have a minor impact, in my view, uh, perhaps among some undecided voters. But Hillary's lead is so substantial uh, prior to this that I think it, it can withstand uh, this, particularly as people realize that uh, uh, Comey uh, is a registered Republican, uh, that this may have been politically motivated on his part. Uh, and uh, I think that... Uh, it will have minimal impact in the long run. Uh, even without yesterday, Donald Trump was closing in on Hillary Clinton and had passed her in some polls, Toby. Well, that's correct. In, in some polls he has, closing in is different from closing. Uh, and uh, he's tightened the race in, in some states. But uh, I, I think uh, Hillary is, is well ahead in most of the polls that I've read and, and in the consensus of all the polls averaged together. I feel sorry for American voters in a way, you know. I, I do, too. And you're one. I am. And so, and, and so, Ron, how are your students at the university, how are they dealing with this campaign and everything that is rolled out day after day, week after week, month after month? How are your, what are your students saying? Well, they're doing what students should do. They're asking questions. They're doing research. Uh, they're seeking uh, wise counsel wherever they can, but ultimately they're going to vote their conscience. There's nothing in our uh, university's uh, role that would suggest that we would steer them in one direction or another. We've had a unique year in that we've had candidates as diverse as Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, and Gary Johnson, as well as Donald Trump, visit the campus and speak to our students. So they've gotten a pretty... Uh, diverse set of opinions presented to them, and we really do promote the idea of critical thinking and academic freedom here where they have the opportunity to gather information and then make the decision that they believe best fits their conscience. All right, Toby. From, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, Toby, in 20 seconds, uh, tell us what that website, is, again, is for Americans living in Canada who would want to vote. 
Uh, thank you, Roy. Uh, votefromabroad.org is a site where Americans can still register to vote in your home state. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for the time today. I'm, I have a funny feeling we'll be talking again before November the 8th. Ron Miller, Associate Dean of the Helm School of Government at Liberty University, the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch, United States Air Force veteran, and Toby Concliffe, U.S. citizen living in Canada, superdelegate of the 2008 Democratic Party Convention, voteframabroad.org. Gentlemen, thank you for the time. Thank you. Thank it's been you. a pleasure dealing with you both. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So the U.S. election and the impact of FBI Director James Comey confirming yesterday that the Bureau is looking again at Hillary Clinton's email mess, the server. Three emails were told maybe of specific interest. Of course, it all depends now sometimes what you've seen in the last five minutes as far as news stories are concerned. John Zogby joins me of ZogbyAnalytics.com, one of the premier pollsters in the United States. His book is We Are Many, We Are One. That's John's most recent book. John, was it ever on your radar that the server, the server, may become an issue to the extent that it has with just days before the November the 8th vote? No, not really. I thought that... Uh if the email issue, you know, raised its head again, it would be more about content than than about the server, the process, uh, what's classified, what's not classified. So once the shock value wears off, <clears throat> and who knows how quickly that'll happen, but once the shock value wears off, what's the lingering impact of what Mr. Comey said and did yesterday? It's a lingering impact. There's only 10 more days to go, and this is the conversation. So it's the conversation, uh, obviously, last night and, and uh, all day today, tomorrow's Sunday talk shows, which takes us into Monday. But we have another tranche of WikiLeaks documents. And while, you know, many in the major media have not been paying so much attention to, to WikiLeaks because of the foibles uh, and problems of, of Donald Trump, you can be sure that the context now is to be paying attention to all things Clinton uh, over the next 10 days, which is precisely what, what she doesn't need. And I believe uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Julian Assange said or, or, or tweeted uh, that his next tranche of emails will sink Hillary Clinton. So clearly there's going to be a lot of interest in and what comes from him, but well, how? But how credible is how credible is Assange? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's it. there. We go. <laughs> that, <laughs> I'm just a humble pollster. I, I measure public opinion. So what? Are, what's, what is the public not, opinion then, John? Well, here's the, here's the thing. The thing is that that Clinton's numbers w were dropping a bit after they had peaked, and more importantly, Trump's numbers were increasing. You know. He was reaching in three out of the last four polls 45%, something he hasn't done before. It's a very close race, and this is all before uh, uh, FBI Director Comey's announcement. Pow, in terms of timing. That is the sort of thing that if it doesn't cause a free fall, at least tightens the race to a, a tie or a, a slight Trump lead. Now, if Julian Assange does in fact have information and a titillating headline like that, I'm going to sink Clinton, you can be assured that 
folks are going to be paying attention to that. In particular, those undecided voters who <clears throat> who tell us, look, I, I'm probably going to vote for the lesser of two evils, but I'm not sure which one that is. And this is not a good time to be thinking that Hillary Clinton is not the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. What about uh, the impact it may have on the battleground states? Those are the ones that are crucial to, uh, to Trump and, and significantly important Clinton. You had already seen some movement in a few of the battleground states before all this. They're very tight. You know, Clinton leading in not all of them anymore, but in um, uh, nine out of 12 of those battleground states, but Roy only by one or two percentage points. And so now we're not talking about moving mountains. We're talking about Donald Trump probably assured, barring anything unforeseen on his end, right, uh, assured of getting his vote out. Hillary Clinton, the one now who really needs to uh, to bring millennials and, and undecided voters and people who either don't like her but will hold their nose or just not enthusiastic about her um, to to be sure to get out to vote. This is the very thing that she doesn't need right now. What are the indicators that you're going to be looking for as to impact over the days to come? Well, uh, you know, principally two things. Uh, you know, uh, which way are our independents going? They've been flipping and flopping back and forth. Donald Trump has been making significant gains among independents. Can Hillary Clinton stop that in its tracks and, and reverse it? The second thing, of course, is millennials. You know, um, <clears throat> two weeks ago, Millennials were all over the place. Hillary Clinton was leading, but nowhere near the kinds of numbers that Barack Obama had been getting among millennials. So we had seen in the last week or so her making significant strides among millennials, but still, you know, a fairly close race. If millennials abandon her or of equal importance, uh, don't turn out to vote, um, Wow. I mean, this election is not over. And it's amazing, really. Uh, With everything that's been revealed about Donald Trump, everything that's been said and written about Donald Trump, it really is amazing that he's still in the race. That's how much there are people that don't like Hillary Clinton. As many as don't like Donald Trump, or almost as many anyway. What a choice and what a position to be in as a pollster to try to figure out who's going to win among two very unpopular candidates. So which car do I want, the one that's rusted out or the one that has no brakes? Uh, That's for the public to decide. (laughs) (laughs) John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. You're right. Take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Reverend, Reverend, where am I going? Reverend? Did you know that you're a reverend? Heck. Hardly. I mean, I... (laughs) Mayor Hector McMillan from Trent Hills in Ontario. I was thinking of somebody else and something else. See, you can't do that. You can't have your mouth say one thing while your brain's thinking of the other thing because it inevitably and invariably results in a collision. Mayor Hector McMillan from uh, Trent Hills in Ontario. You know, Heck, has... uh, He's gone to Germany for his pancreatic IRE nanoknife surgery after it was denied him, at least 
payment was denied by the Ontario healthcare bureaucracy and by the provincial government, even though it was available to him in Kentucky. Within a matter of days, it was denied. And uh, so Hector went to Germany and had it done there. And there were significant numbers of Canadians who participated in a GoFundMe effort to help the mayor. And I have to say this to you, Heck, when I spoke with you yesterday, and it's so good to have you back on the show, when I spoke with you yesterday, you're, the energy in your voice and your, your sound was just so different. I mean, you just sounded like a guy who had just had, just had a huge energy injection, and that's the only way I could, I could think of it. Got a new challenge ahead, against, I got, uh, ahead of me, Roy. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that, but the the uh, the surgery was a success, correct? Yeah, I'm here, and I'm alive, I'm alive and I'm well. And and you told me the surgeon told you that uh, the things had gone well, and he told you that immediately following the surgery, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what happened when he went to Germany. What tell us about the town, the uh, the, the hospital, the the doctor, and how things progressed from uh, from the time that. Uh, that you got there until the time you, you got on the flight to come back to Canada. Walk well, us through. it's um, uh, an old hospital. It was built in the 30s, and uh, um, it's been all renovated. Uh, uh, the wing that I was in was as good as any five-star hotel I've ever been in. You know, they introduce you to the room, and you know, there's a, uh, you know, they give you a robe, and they give you all your own towels, and they give you a, a room with a, a safe on it and, a, and its own refrigerator, and um, you know, it was it was like a five-star hotel room. And I was a little surprised. I went in originally thinking that uh, I was going to have a couple tests, and then I'd come back in a couple days for the surgery. But uh, no, they said uh, you're staying here. Uh, your your wife can and your son can go back to your apartment and uh, and get your bags. But you're you're here with us now. So I was in two days before the surgery, and seven days after the surgery. Um, surgery went for four hours. Uh, huge. Brand new surgical facility, all located several levels below ground. Uh, brand new building, and um, uh, within four hours, I was back in my room again. Which is amazing. It. it was over. Which is absolutely amazing that you were because you were texting me just a couple of hours after coming out of the OR. That's right. And what I the sense that I had at the time, and we did have one conversation with you on the air when you were in Germany. But the sense I had was that they, these people at that hospital, the doctor and the staff, had generated, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I had a sense that they um, instilled in you a sense of confidence. Oh, absolutely. Um, from, from the minute that I, had, I read about the uh, IRE technology, I, I knew it was for me. And uh, it, things couldn't have gone better. It went exactly as I had expected it would. And... For them over there, it was routine. So the doctor comes to see you after the surgery, and he tells you what? You're good to go. Everything went well. Everything went uh, as, as well as expected. Um, where they normally use four of these probes, he said that the, the, t- the tumor that I had was of uh, larger and irregular shape, that they used a fifth probe. So when they inserted the five, the five probes in and then electrocuted it, that was it. Game over. No more tumor. No more tumor. No more tumor. So 
What now, heck? What uh, what has to happen now? What's the follow-up treatment consist of? And that's the follow-up treatment will be in Canada. Yeah, um, I'm having. I, I, I drove to Hamburg in Germany, and um, uh, I gave uh, fresh blood samples and and had samples of the tumor sent to uh, a lab there, and they're doing DNA sequencing on on the tumor. And when I get that report, I'm sending it out to Alberta, where there's uh, guys there that will uh, insert it into their all the, in, the data into their uh, computers, and it will spit out a chemotherapy that um, will track down any remnants of the the cancer wherever it should be in my body and eliminate it. And it may even be a natural a natural treatment. So it establishes what your DNA makeup is. Of the tumor, yeah. Of the, the tumor's DNA makeup. Yeah. And then that is injected into your system, and it, and it hunts down what may still exist or may still be lurking yeah. somewhere and, and destroys it. That's, that's, that's the, correct. So, heck, f- look, it's so good to hear you. It's so good to know that you had a successful experience in Germany, that you feel good about what happened. And I understand there's probably, there's always going to be some level of, let's get this, let's get this chemo, this dedicated chemo out of the way and, and let's, let's just make sure that everything's taken care of for good. I understand that. But you're feeling so much better than, than you were when you went in, you're feeling positive about things. What do you say to the provincial government of Ontario? What do you say to the health minister, given that, as you've pointed out to us many times, with a thousand patients a year, who face what you've faced and who have the same, essentially the same message from the province, oh, nothing we can do. Too bad. I've got words for him, and they're coming. I'm going to the ombudsman. I've, uh, I've already started drafting my, my letter of complaint to the ombudsman. And depending on the outcome of their investigation, should they take it up and what actions uh, come from the ombudsman's office, um, from there, I may very well go to the OPP and, and even possibly the RCMP. There's there's people that need to be held accountable for why this isn't in place, and there's people that need to be held accountable for why the OHIP uh, out-of-country funding program is rigged for the applicant to fail, and it's rigged even worse if you try to appeal their decision. You had that you had the, you, you had that sense all the way through, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's unbeatable. You can't beat them. It's their game. They write the rules. It's their bat and it's their ball. What have some of the other people who are also dealing with pancreatic surgery, uh, pancreatic cancer, and need the surgery as you've had, what are they What are they telling you? Because there are others in Canada hearing about you uh, who are going to Germany just as you heard about other people which led you to Germany. Uh, well, that's, that's a really good point and at, and at this point i'd like to say hi to the roland family i know they're over there with mom right now at the at the hospital in stalton um, i met them before before i left and uh, they heard uh, all about it uh, on on your show and and they jumped on a plane and and took mom with them and and she's over there being looked after right now and there's others as well were they getting uh, the same message you got well too bad absolutely. there's nothing we can do for you Nothing we can do. And, that, and, and they're from Alberta, and they heard the exact same thing. And that is what you were told, correct? In, in so many words, there's nothing we can do for you. Unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Yep, nothing that we can or will. 
do for you. But there are things they could do for you, but they've there's something going on, and that's why we got to find out what's going on here. There's no reason why the exact same nano knife machine at the Toronto UHN is not being used for pancreatic cancer. The doctor's there. The surgeon is there. They know Dr. Martin in Kentucky. Either he or one of his team will fly up and, and show them how to use the machine. And I know that at least one of the surgeons there has been to Kentucky to Dr. Martin's office. They've seen how it works. They know how it works. There's something wrong. But Heck, I don't understand how it is that you can have the machine in the hospital. It's there. It's ready to go. It's, it's, you need to buy, from what I understand, you have to buy the software packages uh, unless they come with the machine. It's for, there. They've got it. Well, they, they come with the machine. So they have the, they have the necessary software. Yep. So, now, so now it's a case of, of having a, a surgeon trained up to do the procedure on that machine. That's right. So you've got the machine. You've got the software. So why isn't there the incentive rhetorical question, why isn't there the incentive to use it for what it was intended, at least it's intended for other things as well, but use it to perform the kind of pancreatic cancer surgery that you had to go to Germany for? That's the the question, right? Follow the money. There's something wrong. But I understand they want to have a study done in Canada. The studies have already been done on this machine. There's already a 200-patient multicenter study that was done in the United States a couple of years ago. And that was handed to them for free. All right, my friend. We are going to, as we like to say, and we do, we're going to stay in touch. And as you move forward, we'll move forward with you, Heck. Thanks so much, and thanks to everyone who's uh, helped me survive this. We're on your side. Talk to you soon, my friend. All the best. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. They are the beauties. I am the other part of that equation. Catherine Swift, Linda Levendale, Michelle Simpson. And it's just over a year since Canada is back. Those words were spoken by our Prime Minister, who's back where he spoke them in Europe, to sign the CETA Accord, the free trade agreement with Europe. So we have about five minutes to assess a full year plus of... um, Governance federally by the liberals, back in their natural governing position. So uh, we're going to we're going to end this segment with uh, with Michelle. So let's start with Catherine. Well, when I think of the, the promises they've broken, frankly, a lot of them don't bother me because I think they were sensible things in the first place. For example, they made a big deal about the Harper government being so awful on the environment, and yet they've kept precisely the same goals. Mind you, after they flew a bazillion people to Paris at, at great cost to the environment, um, you know, they, we, we had way more delegates than countries like the U.S., which is utterly ridiculous. But anyway, but frankly, that, that wasn't a bad promise to break, because those were sensible targets. Um, recently, the provinces have found out that the Trudeau government plans to do nothing different than the Harper government did in terms of scaling back. People have represented it as a, as a decline in funding, which is wrong. It's a reduction in the rate of growth of funding, but funding still increases. That was sensible. But the stuff that, I guess, bothers me about the promises they broke are around things like big spending, big deficits, big debts, they like to talk about being supportive of young people, and yet that is the very constituency they are betraying profoundly when they run us into massive debt 
um, you know, put on CPP reform, which is basically helping public sector unions to the expense of everybody else in Canada, and so on and so forth. So they've kept they've they've kept the wrong promises, and frankly, they haven't kept that many. Um, and that just recently, also the the that UN declaration on the rights of Aboriginals, they said they would adhere to that, and of course, then they said, oh, it's unworkable. Well, that's actually what the Harper government said, and it was unworkable because it would legally constrain governments to an extent that was utterly ridiculous. So. You know, again, a lot of good, a lot of good flash and PR, not much delivery in terms of substance. Two minutes, one minute each for Linda and Michelle. Ms. Leatherdale. Well, I would just say 200,000 promises. Catherine's absolutely right. But you know what? They are facing now the people, Canadian Labour Congress, the youth, they heckled him, etc. Um, there's so many groups now that are saying he has backed off and he's not kept his promises. But I think key here is the economy. And he talks about spending, 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 which Catherine's right is going to hurt the young people. But, you know, that spending, a 1.5 GDP growth is terrible, and we've got oil in the slump, Brexit, Donald Trump, Lord knows what else is going to hurt our economy. And if he turns up the tabs, he's never going to get it back to 3% in the 1990s. And I think that's a key issue here. And carbon tax, wrong way to go. Wrong way to go, Justin Trudeau. I think the bloom is off the rose, and next year is going to be a very trying time. Interesting. When I spoke with uh, Premier Brad Wall of Saskatchewan last Sunday, Mm. he said he'd had a conversation with the Prime Minister the day after he made the carbon tax commitment in Parliament, and he said to the Prime Minister, Michelle, have you done any kind of economic impact study? The answer was no. I'm not surprised. There is a lot of sizzle not a lot of stake, as Catherine and Linda have alluded to. A lot of kicking the can down the road. Uh, but, you know, they're going to hit the brick wall, and they're going to have to deliver, uh, you know, no more consultation. They've consulted beyond belief, or that's what they say, and they're going to have to start making hard decisions. And Kevin O'Leary Kevin O'Leary's going to help them, right? Kevin O'Leary will help them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, heaven help Oh, no, please. But no, we haven't even talked electoral reform, which is already starting to go off the rails. It is. And the, yeah. and, and the consultation they're often doing is, I'm sorry, phony consultation. They have exactly. the appearance of these consultation meetings, but no substance. What a surprise. Yeah, yeah I know. Quelle surprise, surprise, huh? change, plus c'est la même chose. Définitivement. Merci. Tout le monde. Et bonne journée. We'll talk to you next, uh, next, next, next Saturday. Remember, Michelle, it's ZZ Top. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, Zed Top. ZZ Top. Come on. <laughs> talk to you next weekend. Look forward The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.